if you develop a test for each one of those many, many different mental abilities and test people, what you find is the scores tend to correlate with each other. And they all tend to be positive correlations. It's something called the positive manifold, meaning that if you do one, if you do well on one test of mental ability, you tend to do well on all other tests of mental ability. Okay. And that implies all tests of mental ability have something in common. And that something in common is called the factor of general intelligence. Psychologists call it the G factor, G for general. Now, it turns out if you take IQ tests, IQ tests are good estimates of the G factor because standard IQ tests uh, have different subtests. So you're sampling different mental abilities, different cognitive domains, and you can put those scores together and that one score is a good estimate of the, of the G factor. Hello, this is Robinson Earhart here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast, number 171. And this episode is with Richard Heyer, who is Professor Emeritus in the School of Medicine at the University of California, Irvine, where he uses brain imaging and the tools of neuroscience to study intelligence. And he's also the editor-in-chief, as uh, luck would have it, of the journal Intelligence. And in this episode... Rich and I discuss all things intelligence, ranging from its many controversies. Uh, well, intelligence itself, I wouldn't say is controversial, but the research of intelligence is certainly controversial. Then the origin of and current status of psychometric testing, the relationship between intelligence, brain structure, and brain function, the predictive power of IQ in career success in other areas, and last but not least, something uh, many people are very interested in, whether or not it's possible to increase one's general intelligence. So Rich's most recent book is the second edition of his Guide to Neuroscience Research and Intelligence, and it is called The Neuroscience of Intelligence. And there's a link to it in the description. Without now, any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Rich. Last week, I spoke with the behavioral geneticist, uh, Robert Plowman, and we discussed two ways that intelligence has been researched over the past hundred years. The quantitative approach that started with Mendel that went, oh, sorry, the molecular approach went started with Mendel and that leads into genetics. And then the quantitative approach that started with Galton and where intelligence was studied through behavioral studies. But your work has also touched, in addition to those, on a, on a third approach, and that's through the brain. And I was wondering, just to get us started, which of the three models did you begin with? And what was it about studying intelligence that first gripped you? Well, when I started uh, graduate school in 1971, um, I was interested in different aspects of intelligence. Um, and it was more some of the psychometric aspects. Psychometrics is a branch of statistics 
uh, psychometrics that were developed uh, especially to look at uh, tests, especially intelligence tests and mental ability tests. So I was interested in psychometrics and what they correlated with. And at the time, in 1971, uh, the question about genetics was just a simple question. Did genetics have anything to do with individual differences in intelligence or not? It was the same question that was being posed in schizophrenia in the, in the late 60s and early 70s. Does genetics have anything to do with these complex things or not? And it really wasn't until I left graduate school for my first job at the National Institute of Mental Health that I really was exposed there to more of the biological aspects of schizophrenia and then uh, intelligence. Uh, at uh, the, the National Institute of uh, Mental Health, NIMH, uh, while I was there, they became interested in a, at the time, a brand new ima brain imaging technology called positron emission tomography, known as PET scanning. And um, they ordered one. They were getting one of the first uh, commercially available PET scanners. And uh, I actually left NIMH before it arrived, but the people I was working with at NIMH, uh, they got one, they started to use it, but subsequently they left for the University of California at Irvine. I left my job at Brown University and came and rejoined them at the University of California because I wanted to be able to use this remarkable technology to study the brain. And the first study that I was able to do while my colleagues were working on schizophrenia and other psychiatric disorders, I renewed my interest from graduate school in intelligence. And so I was able to do really the first PET scan study of, of intelligence. That was way back in 1988. That was 12 years before MRIs became available. So it had a very long history. The beauty of PET scanning uh, was that it showed uh, what parts of the brain were active while a person was doing some kind of psychological task, like an intelligence test. And we just asked the simple question, while people were in this, uh, taking the PET scan and they were doing an intelligence test, what parts of the brain were active? And we did see some parts of the brain were active, but the real surprise was the more activity we saw in those brain areas, the less well they did on the test. It was an unexpected inverse correlation. So it wasn't how hard their brain was working that was related to intelligence. We thought it was how efficiently their brain was working. So way back in 1988, this first empirical observation of a relationship between brain activity measured with positron emission tomography, really for the first time, and psychometric test scores uh, showed something pretty interesting. Um, and uh, I started from there doing more studies using PET scanning and various aspects of intelligence. And then around the year 2000, a little bit later, we started using uh, 
uh, MRIs as well, both structural and functional MRIs. And what, uh, you know, right from the very beginning in 1988, uh, critics of intelligence testing were kind of uh, in some ways uh, stunned uh, if their criticism was that intelligence test scores were meaningless and really were just arbitrary or statistical artifacts to see that they were related to quantifiable brain characteristics like glucose metabolic rate, which is what PET scans <laughs> measured. Uh, this gave some critics uh, a pause uh, for that kind of criticism. And um, up until that time, uh, aspects of intelligence testing had been quite controversial, at least for two decades. But I began to notice with the advent of, of uh, brain imaging studies of intelligence with more and more sophisticated genetic findings on intelligence, that kind of, uh, of really superficial criticism of intelligence testing and intelligence research really uh, started to go away. And today it's uh, really not common among people who actually know the data. There's still widespread beliefs from people who don't know the data that are not consistent with the data. Uh, but critics nowadays are, you know, there, there is a lot of legitimate criticism and skepticism about intelligence research. And most of it is discussed in kind of professional ways in professional channels within professional norms. Uh, and that is that kind of feedback, that kind of skepticism, that kind of criticism is absolutely essential for any field to move forward. Uh, intelligence research seems to be a little unique in that it has critics from outside the field uh, who uh, really, uh, in many ways, are, are not arguing or not presenting their criticism in good faith. You know, these t people tend to be uh, very self-righteous, little arrogant, little narcissistic. Some of them actually have a dash of cruelty in the way they approach this. But th that kind of criticism really is not characteristic of the field. The field is moving forward. And one of the interesting things about the evolution of the field as you laid out the three different ways to approach this, they're all coalescing now. They're coming together in the same studies with gigantic sample sizes. Behavioral genomics? Behavioral genomics. Uh, and people who uh, are not traditionally trained in psychometric studies of intelligence, but trained in everything from uh, big data to uh, molecular genetics. Uh, to cognitive psychology, they're coming into uh, collaborative studies where you will find sophisticated cognitive psychology, sophisticated psychometrics, sophisticated DNA analysis, and sophisticated brain imaging, all done on the same samples with very large numbers. So that's why the field is progressing. Well. A, a few things. I saw that just uh, maybe a week ago, you it might have been an essay or an article. I think it was actually a book chapter that you wrote came out uh, came out about 
the the criticisms of intelligence research and we'll we'll totally get to that did the controversy that you mentioned that had been around for a couple of decades in the 80s and 90s was that referring to this did that stem from this paper i think the name was arthur jensen that maybe tied in intelligence to educational success and genetics well um there's a bit of history here let me let me go into it uh it's important i think if if you want an overview of uh where intelligence research is today you kind of have to know oh, absolutely. why people are so angry about it there are people who are just angry about it that those are the people i've mentioned before as being kind of uh, self-righteous uh, uh, about the whole concept uh but um in the night going back to world war one is really when uh, intelligence tests uh, started to be used widely. Uh, the United States Army used them on new recruits. And way back uh, at that time, in the early part of the 20th century, there were average group differences in scores. So this is, And this has been observed ever since. Uh, and there's not too much controversy about the existence of these average group differences except for what causes them. And that's very controversial. And uh, in the 1950s, as a result of Supreme Court decisions uh, that struck down this racist concept of se separate but equal, there was a lot of enthusiasm among uh, educators and psychologists who were very interested in minimizing or getting rid of that gap, that, that uh, that average group difference uh, among different groups. And they thought the way to do this was to compensate for unequal educational opportunities. And they thought that by, by having early childhood education to compensate for the lack of educational opportunities, this would essentially eliminate those average group differences. And a number of demonstration projects were funded by the federal government to see if, in fact, uh, you could boost IQ scores by having uh, young children in these uh, 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 educational programs, talking about uh, uh, very young children. And some of the early demonstration projects showed remarkable success in terms of raising IQ scores by 10 or 15 points. That's a lot, and that's significant. And people were very encouraged by this. And um, the Harvard Educational Review asked a, an educational psychologist named Arthur Jensen at UC Berkeley to review these projects, which he did in the paper that has become infamous, was published in 1969. And the opening sentence is words to the effect that we have tried compensatory education and it has failed. And he then went through each of these demonstration projects and pointed out that the fantastic results they were reporting were really artifacts of very bad research design or mismeasurement, or there were just a lot of problems with these studies. And then he went further and he said, look, if, if, IQ is so resistant, IQ scores are so resistant to educational interventions, 
maybe we should consider that there are other factors involved in these average group differences, including possibly genetics. And people really reacted negatively to that implication that some groups were genetically going to score lower or higher than other groups. It was an incendiary uh, comment. And um, many uh, psychologists and educators critique the, the very idea that genetics could have anything to do with it as more and more genetic data were collected, and that case became a little stronger and stronger as time went on, some of the critics shifted to critiquing the tests, the IQ tests themselves. And some critics in the 1970s and 1980s argued that IQ was a meaningless number, the tests were inherently biased, if not racist. Uh, and um, those criticisms were, were uh, extremely widespread. But as time went on, those criticisms were studied empirically by dozens and dozens of, of investigators. And there are now hundreds, if not thousands of papers that essentially refute every one of those criticisms. So those controversies about the test being uh, not a valid test of intelligence, being an unreliable test, uh, being an artifact uh, or a meaningless number, that has pretty much gone away. Uh, and now a more sophisticated set of criticisms that are you know realistic criticism and, and skepticism are how do you determine what genes are involved, what those genes do, how do those gene expressions interact with non-genetic uh, factors like environment, random chance. There are a lot of factors involved in individual differences in intelligence and group average group differences in intelligence. In my view, uh, the data are getting more sophisticated. We're asking more sophisticated questions. And uh, while we don't have answers to all these questions yet, I do see a progression away from those controversies of the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s into a more sophisticated, uh, if you will, neuroscience kind of context to study uh, why some people can reason better than others. I agree with you completely that getting into the history is very important for us. Uh, well, for everyone, but for us today in this conversation. And there are, there are a lot of things that I'd like to talk about here. But for now, I think we should leave the question of group differences for later until we've set up some of the basics. But I do gather that a lot of this resistance to Jensen's suggestion makes sense when we jump back to that context. Like when you started in 71, I hadn't realized before talking with Robert, just how pervasive the idea was that the environment was wholly responsible for traits like intelligence or conditions like schizophrenia. But one point about the data that uh, Arthur Jensen was looking at, where demonstration showed that you could raise IQ points by, by IQ by 10 or 15 points. I'm wondering if this also just seems highly unlikely because something that I 
have read is that intelligence becomes hmm i was going to say intelligence becomes more crystallized as you age is that correct or is it incorrect well there are different kinds of intelligence different definitions or different aspects of intelligence is a better way to say it crystallized intelligence refers to the knowledge you accumulate some people just accumulate more knowledge they know more things you can see this way if you watch jeopardy some people just know more than other people um, and then fluid intelligence is the other major category that is your reasoning ability that's what you do with information you have that's how you figure out what you want to do when you don't know what to do uh, that fluid intelligence uh, is uh, how you handle complex problems and people differ in their their ability to handle complexity and um, measures of in fluid measures of fluid intelligence are the measures that that test that hmm. well stepping back actually from from crystallized intelligence or fluid intelligence or verbal or spatial or any of these types of intelligence defining intelligence in general has come up many times on the show and i've spoken with philosophers and computer science about when we computer scientists about when we might have reason to say an ai is intelligent or biologists and complexity theorists about when it's right to call a slime mold intelligent but your approach to intelligence and the psychometric approach in general is quite different and it's explicitly human and i know this is a rather broad question to start with but before we get into psychometrics how do you think about defining intelligence in general is it something that should be done entirely operationally or should it be stipulated i mean there are a bunch of possibilities and considerations uh, intelligence researchers for a hundred years have focused on an empirical definition and it is a, a, a fairly um uh easy uh definition to understand and it's not unique to humans by the way it's not, it's not. and uh, it's called general intelligence a general ability irrespective of the content of the problem to reason uh, you know one way to think about it is individual differences in learning and memory and attention some people can learn more than others some people pay attention better than others some people can remember more than others all of those things are related to intelligence test scores now the formal definition for most intelligence research is based on the observation made by Charles Spearman in the early part of the 20th century that if you have different tests of if you have tests of different mental abilities there are, there are I don't know an infinite number of mental abilities you know from playing poker uh, to uh, spelling to arithmetic to picking uh, horse uh, race winners i mean there's all kinds of abilities mental abilities if you develop a test for each one of those many many different mental abilities and test people what you find is the scores tend to correlate with each other and they all tend to be positive correlations 
it's something called the positive manifold, meaning that if you do one, if you do well on one test of mental ability, you tend to do well on all other tests of mental ability. Okay, and that implies all tests of mental ability have something in common, and that something in common is called the factor of general intelligence. Psychologists call it the G factor, G for general. Now, it turns out if you take IQ tests, IQ tests are good estimates of the G factor because standard IQ tests uh, have different subtests. So you're sampling different mental abilities, different cognitive domains, and you can put those scores together and that one score is a good estimate of the, of the G factor. But the G factor at best is only only accounts for about half of the variance in mental abilities. In addition to the general factor, there are specific factors like mathematical ability and verbal ability and spatial ability. They would be the big three individual factors in addition to the G factor. Most intelligence research is on the G factor, uh, but there's also plenty on those individual factors. And a lot of psychometric research tries to figure out what is the structure of mental abilities? Is uh, How many factors do you need? What is the relationship to those factors? Uh, the simple version is that the G factor alone is the single most important factor. Most neuroimaging studies and most genetic studies have some uh, estimate of the G factor. Uh, and, and that's kind of where we are today. But uh, even though G is, uh, you can't measure G directly. You can't measure, there are no direct measures of intelligence. It's not like measuring distance or it's not like measuring weight. There is no uh, a ratio scale uh, of uh, intelligence. Intelligence test scores have meaning only relative to other people. That is a major limitation of the field. Some people are trying to figure out ways to assess intelligence on a ratio scale, like by using reaction time or some metric where you know uh, 300 milliseconds is twice as slow as 150 milliseconds. It's not true that people with an IQ of 140 are twice as smart as people with an IQ of 70 doesn't work that way. Hmm. I'd like to get deeper into this history. And you mentioned Charles Spearman. Was he the, the first person to develop an IQ test? I, I think that there's a there's a deeper story here. Uh, well, yeah, it's been a while since I looked at this, but he tested a bunch of uh, Cambridge undergraduates on different tests, uh, mental ability and even perceptual tests. And he, and he invented the correlation coefficient. Okay, you're uh, a statistician. He, he was he was many things, uh, including a statistician, and um, he um, he developed this the idea of a correlation coefficient and how to compute it to ascertain to quantify the similarity among test scores, and um, he's the one that noticed all these tests had a positive correlation with each other. It was just not the case if you did well on one test, you did poorly on other tests. It just, you know, in terms of group data, at least that, that didn't happen. 
So yes, it goes back to him. It was um, really, um, and I forget now they developed the actual, literally the first um, uh, Benet in France uh, had one of the first, I don't think it was the first, but he had one of the first tests to measure uh, intellectual ability differences among school children in France. And the reason they did that is uh, teachers in, in France uh, back in the 1800s, if they had a, a discipline problem with a student, they might label that student uh, intellectually disabled, even though it was a discipline problem. Because by doing that, they could get that kid out of their classroom into a special institution. And the minister of education in France uh, wanted to correct that. So he asked Benet to come up with a test to where they could measure the actual mental ability of kids. So they could identify kids who truly needed extra help, not because of discipline, but because they had uh, uh, mental abilities that needed special attention. So the, the, uh, the motivation for that test was really quite positive. Uh, and Binet then developed some tests that were age appropriate. And um, later on, uh, uh, somebody else um, added a, a wrinkle to it that resulted in a ratio of uh, mental ability to actual chronological age that became the IQ score. Later developments of IQ tests became more sophisticated than that ratio. Uh, and th this would be a whole lecture to go into the statistical details of how this was done. But nowadays, uh, you know, IQ tests are, are very psychometrically sophisticated in terms of um, finding uh, items that are not biased, finding items that are predictive uh, in aggregate of what your criteria are. Um, so it has, a, it has a very interesting history, but whole books have been written about the, that history. I discuss it in more detail than we're talking about now uh, in uh, a book I wrote called The Neuroscience of Intelligence. Chapter one of that book talks about the development of the test, talks about the G factor, uh, talks about the Jensen controversy. Uh, all uh, that's all chapter one to get uh, to prime the discussions of uh, genetics and brain imaging, which is the rest of the book. Mm -hmm. One reason that I think that this is still so relevant, though, is that there's a hundred years of testing data, and I'm wondering to what extent today's IQ test resembled those of a century ago and how that affects the relevance of older research today? Well, if you the G factor is extracted from a battery of tests, and there's a lot of research that shows if you have a battery of tests and you extract a G factor, and you have a different battery of tests and you extract a G factor, as long as you have random sample of people, and a good sampling of, of tests, those two G factors are correlated with each other around 0.9 or higher. So if you just have a test score 
uh, that's not as good as this latent G factor. And so the best research uh, uses, um, ec extracts the G factor using uh, a certain kind of uh, statistical technique called factor analysis. Uh, this led some people, by the way, to believe that uh, because factor analysis generated the, the G-score of that, G was just an, a statistical artifact. This turns out not to be true at all. Hmm. And you see, so we've already we've talked a bit about the G-factor, and you distinguish it from spatial, numerical, verbal, other dimensions of intelligence that well, I think you said the G factor is responsible for 50% or so of... Of the variance in an IQ score. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if the G factor on the one hand, and then the spatial, numerical, verbal, and so on dimensions of intelligence, if they each reflect distinct underlying structures or cognitive capacities of the brain, or if they're just useful terms for purposes of conceptual classification... Well, it would be nice if you could find brain areas that were the mathematical areas or the verbal areas. And while there's some indication, especially for verbal, that there are certain brain structures like um, Broca's area, Wernicke's area, that are related to, to verbal ability, uh, there aren't really uh, comparable uh, areas just for math and parietal lobe is important for math. And the, whether or not there are areas that underlie the G factor was kind of an early question we had. The data are not so clear on these things because uh, as brain imaging gets more sophisticated, just identifying areas where activity or density uh, of gray matter correlate to something like a mathematics score or a verbal score or a G score, it turns out the connectivity of the areas is just as important as what goes as what goes on in the areas themselves. So the idea is to identify that brain networks, not just the areas, but how those areas communicate with other areas and uh, whether or not there are special networks for the G factor is not so clear, although there's a lot of data on it that are very intriguing. Uh, and uh, I talk about this uh, new data, it's relatively new over the last couple of years, using very sophisticated analysis of brain images uh, to ask questions about functional and structural connectivity measurements of the brain and how they relate to individual differences in psychometric IQ scores. And they do. And it's it's very interesting work. It's certainly a, lo a long way from the 1988 paper we published, uh, just showing a, you know, a small number of areas where uh, a small number of areas poorly defined at the time. <laughs> Uh, were related to uh, these psychometric scores. The existence of the positive manifold though, that you mentioned earlier certainly suggests that they're all all these areas are entangled, whatever they are, whatever they may be. Yes, and and it's worse than that. 
So not only are all the areas, they're not entangled randomly. There's order there and researchers are trying to figure out the order. That's the neuroimaging part. But now if you ask the question, how do the how do genes influence what's the relationship between genes and the neuroimaging part? Now you have DNA analysis and you have this relatively recent concept of polygenic scores. Polygenic scores, um, they're like all new innovations, they become more controversial with time, not less. As more as they generate more data, and people begin to see uh, weaknesses that you know that weren't obvious when they first started being used. But a polygenic score is there uh, if you can identify genes that are related to intelligence. And a lot of genes have been related to intelligence. Uh, when this started, the hope was you'd have a handful of genes, and then it would be a relatively straightforward, easy problem to figure out what those genes do. Well, it turns out, no surprise, the brain is more complex, and there are hundreds, maybe a thousand genes, each weakly related to psychometric IQ scores. And when I say gene, your audience should understand that genes come in in, in variants, uh, and these can be called uh, single poly single single poly my well single poly. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not polymorphisms. Yes, thank you. And uh, they're called they're abbreviated SNPs. Uh, and you can measure SNPs in Snip people. Chips. Yes, and um, you you can uh, give a, a, a to make a really simple example. You measure the SNPs re related to intelligence. You in a person you measure how many of those intelligence related SNPs does that person have, and the more SNPs related to intelligence that person has, the higher their polygenic score. Now, you can give these scores in different ways, and you can weight them in different ways. But the point is you then have a genetic metric that you can correlate with the psychometric scores, for example. And you can see that whether or not people with high polygenic scores for IQ, in fact, get high IQ scores. And right now, the best data seem to indicate that polygenic scores predict somewhere between 10 and 20% of the variance, relatively small amount. Uh, but it's not clear any other variable predicts more. <laughs> Is it predicted that, or suspected, expected that the the correlation will become higher as the sophistication of what goes into the polygenic score becomes more sophisticated? This is the hope, but there is appears to be some limits to this because um, as the studies became more sophisticated with larger and larger sample sizes, uh, people said you might need a million people and researchers said you might need a million people. Well, there was 
there was a study published with a million people. And the incremental amount of variance explained by the polygenic score didn't increase that much. So it looks like there may be a, a cap on this. And then there's also this other mystery of why polygenic scores seem to predict less variance in intelligence than you would think based on identical twin studies and behavioral genetics, where estimates were around 50%, if not more, depending on the age of the person. So there are a lot of mysteries here still, but we're a far cry from when I started in 1971, is genetics involved or not? There are uh, critics of this whole enterprise who argue that fundamentally, you cannot make progress in this area because you think brain areas are entangled and complicated. Well, the genetic story is even more complicated because genes, gene expression can be, can be, doesn't have to be, but gene expression can be influenced by environmental variables like stress. Uh, they can be influenced by other genetic variables. Uh, and there's always random chance in the mix that affects how genes express themselves. So it's a terribly complicated mix of things. Some geneticists believe it's so complicated you can never disentangle things enough to not only say how much it's genetics involved compared to environment, but you can never really identify biological causal mechanisms that are influenced by the genetics. Other people, and I would include myself in the other people category, look to the history of science. I'm not an expert in ge genetics by any means, but they look to the, the history of, of science and they say science is all about figuring out complex things. You know, and just because it's complex and multi-dimensional, multi-determined, and highly interactive, doesn't mean that at some point we won't be able to figure out something that's uh, causally relevant about the neurobiology of intelligence. And that is where I think the whole field is going. I think all intelligence research is moving in this much more fundamental neuroscience direction for the purpose of understanding the neurobiological mechanisms that underlie individual differences in intelligence to the point where we can come up with ways to tweak those mechanisms with the possibility of dramatically increasing the G factor. Not IQ scores, but I'm talking about the, the latent G factor. Pharmacologically or through gene therapy or something like that? Uh, it's an empirical question, either through gene therapy or through uh, intervening in some final common pathway. You know, if you got a whole bunch of genes, each with a tiny uh, influence, but a, a group of them are uh, relevant to the dynamics of a particular neurotransmitter, then that's a hint that manipulating aspects of that neurotransmitter might have some impact on intelligence. 
I'm choosing my words carefully because when I say manipulating the impact of a neurotransmitter, I mean, you got synaptic events, you got presynaptic, postsynaptic, uh, uh, you, got, you got a whole bunch of stuff happening at the level of the synapse. Molecular biologists are the people who diligently figure that out, takes forever, <laughs> and but there are groups all over the world working on these things. So with a little coordination uh, and some time and effort and, and funding, uh, it may be that, um, I doubt I'll live to see it, but at some point in the future, we will know a heck of a lot more about the neurobiology of intelligence that we know today. But you think you think that psychometrics will still be around? Psychometrics will be the, will be crucial to the teams working on this to get a sophisticated measurement of intelligence, rather than just a single test score, or rather than a proxy like educational attainment, which is a proxy for IQ. Right. You need to be able to measure these bi neurobiological findings against something behaviorally. So that's why the psychometric data is going to continue to be very important. Yes. And when you think about uh, on one side, we have multi-million dollar sophistication of neuroimaging techniques, DNA analysis. Uh, and on the other side, we have an IQ score. That's a, you know a paper and pencil test that's been used for you know decades. So certainly, if there if there's a way to match the sophistication of the neurobiology measures to the behavioral measure, that will help move the field forward as well. But I think psychometrics is going is for the time being is going to play an important role here. So now what you have is you have these multinational consortia working on collecting neuroimaging, DNA, cognitive tests, uh, and uh, you have people putting these things together. And that's very, very powerful. Hmm. I'd like to dwell on the psychometric tests a bit longer before we get more deep into the neurobiology, because I'm guessing that many of our listeners including myself, have never taken an IQ test before, even though we might have taken standardized tests, which I understand are uh, importantly related to IQ tests. But what do the most cutting-edge psychometric tests look like? And I, I'm particularly curious about this because I wonder how they can be formulated so as not to depend on the educational background of the person who's taking them. So how can you measure somebody's verbal IQ if they never learned how to read properly or their mathematical IQ or their quantitative IQ if they didn't take calculus in college, something like this? Well, those things are not unrelated. So who takes calculus? Smarter kids in high school. Uh, so I think the simple answer to your question, I, I've described IQ tests in chapter one of, of my book just for this reason, but in some ways the content of the items doesn't matter. This is a little tricky concept for people to get their heads around. 
the content doesn't matter for the G factor. So the two subtests on the WACE intelligence test, the Wexler Adult Intelligence Scale, a very widely used test with subtests. The two subtests that have the highest G-loading are block design, and you copy a design using blocks that are half white and half uh, red, and vocabulary. Now, vocabulary would seem to be dependent on education, but people who get who attain the highest vocabulary scores are also the people who could be more verbally attuned. In other words, have more verbal intelligence. So in some ways, it's a chicken and egg thing. But you can do, and there are many, many studies like this, where you can take psychometric IQ scores, correlate them to something controlling for education, controlling for social economic status. And when you take out any variance that's attributable to education or social economic status, you still get very robust correlations with the residual latent G factor. It's maybe a slightly technical answer. Uh, but the point I want to make is because the G factor works irrespective of content, it's general to all of these tests, a particular item on a test doesn't matter. You know, uh, one of the be one of the highest loaded loaded G tests uh, was uh, an analogies test. You know, wing is to bird as window is to house, or something like that. But it also uh, seemed to be the most biased. <laughs> Uh, and so the makers of the SAT test took out the analogies test, even though it was a high G, G test. Uh, so there are a lot of aspects to testing now. Uh, you can make an argument that some of the standardized tests like the SAT are not as G-loaded as they used to be because it was the G-loaded test that tended to show the largest average group differences. Um, you've said G-loaded a number of times. Does G-loaded just mean correlates to G-factor? Yes. Not every test correlates to a G-factor equally well. Uh, so yes, you can. And the G-loading uh, of tests is important. So there is a test of matrix reasoning called the Raven's Progressive Matrices Test. That is a test with a high G loading. And often researchers will only use that test in a study because it only takes 40 minutes and it can be uh, given in a group setting. But it's only one score. It's much better to have G derived from a battery of tests, even though uh, the Ravens has a, has a high G loading. I mentioned vocabulary has a high G loading. Block design has a high G loading. Um, so uh, the assessment uh, of intelligence is really very sophisticated now. But at best, you're going to get a, 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 um, a measure. You're going to get a rank order. Uh, so if you score around 130, you're going to be in about the top 
uh, of the population. These are statistical probabilities based on the normal distribution. IQ scores are generally normally distributed. So for the purpose of IQ testing, the scores are generally normally distributed. So most people will score 100. And, uh, and then one standard deviation would be uh, uh, 115. So between 85 and 115, you've got about 64% of the population. Those are normal scores. But you know, in any individual case, you have to interpret an IQ score in the context of other aspects of the person. That that's not controversial. And saying that somebody is in the top two percent of intellectual ability in the population tells you some important information, but it's by no means tell, tells you everything you need to know about the person if you're selecting students or if you're selecting for various jobs. There are other aspects here, although uh, the G factor is predictive of many things. Uh, and the more complex the thing is you're trying to measure, uh, the more the G factor uh, helps you. So um, one point I want to make is based on the normal distribution of IQ scores, in the United States, there are uh, 16% of the population would have an IQ score under 85. Now, that's 53 million people, including about 14 million children, have IQ scores below 85. Now, that's not a retardation. That's not a developmental disability. But uh, people with IQ scores in the 85 range uh, have trouble doing complex work, whether it's in college or whether it's uh, in uh, vocational work. Uh, and therefore, you got 53 million people who, through no fault of their own, I should add, uh, have difficulty navigating the complexities of everyday life in the modern world. Uh, and this, how that should impact social policy in my view, is, is an important question. Mm -hmm. The reason that I asked about controlling for educational background is that there are a lot of misconceptions about IQ tests and other standardized tests. And the one I was uh, alluding to is that it is that IQ tests don't test intelligence, but how closely your thinking matches that of the ideal, rich, educated white man. And I'm wondering what you think of or what you think are some of the other most prominent or even destructive misconceptions about I don't IQ spend tests. any time on that I mean that that is a pervasive thought it's not a it's not a finding there's no empirical finding that supports that data as a matter of fact uh, there are papers that show you can extract a G factor in over a hundred, I think over 130 countries were studied, and uh, you get G factors everywhere. It's very pervasive. Uh, so people have these ideas, but always the question should be: the burden of proof is on them to show some study that supports that idea. The idea of these kinds of biases, 
has been around for 50 years. These are not new arguments. And back in the 60s and 70s, during really intense controversy about these issues, many researchers tried to generate data to test these ideas. And as far as I know, uh, no, there are no studies that support these ideas. Now, I, I'll, you know, if people want to email me references, I'm happy to look at them. I, I, you know, I don't know everything in the, in the literature. But I think critics also have to understand a concept called the weight of evidence. So they may be able to find one study here or there that suggests something like that. But the weight of evidence is that after dozens of studies that failed to find that. In the 70s, there was, there was a, an earnest effort to develop a different kind of IQ test that would be culture-free. And um, some people developed what they thought would be uh, either a culture-free or that actually would favor some minority groups just to demonstrate that the content of the test is important. The problem is you couldn't extract a G-factor and with no G factor in the test, they didn't predict anything. Yeah, they would. People had different scores, but they literally were meaningless in terms of being able to predict things. So uh, there are still people around today who fervently believe things like you just said. Uh, I can only say, if they have an open mind and want to discuss the literature, I'm open. <laughs> I'm open to I, I'm open to changing my mind if I can see empirical studies that support that. Just like I'm open to changing my mind to show that environmental variables are important in early childhood education with respect to intelligence. Lots of studies have tried. A few studies show some effect. All of those studies where you look over time show the effect fades away. So there are no lasting studies. If environment was really important, I think we would have seen it in these studies. They're good studies. They're well-designed studies carried out by good researchers, but they failed to find it. So when Jensen said in 1969, we've tried compensatory education and it has failed with respect to boosting IQ, uh, I'm not aware of any studies since that would uh, contradict that conclusion. There are good reasons, by the way, I want, want to add, there are good reasons to support early childhood education. I support it as a social policy, but not because it raises IQ. It does other good things. And in fact, compensatory education is now called early childhood education rather than compensatory education kind of an acknowledgement that the compensatory part really didn't work. Mm -hmm. what, I, what I was asking was whether there are other important and incorrect misconceptions that you think are worth dispelling other than the one that I mentioned. Well, there is a book um, that deals with 35 common myths about intelligence. It's called In the Know, Debunking 35 Myths About Human Intelligence. The author is Russell Warren, W-A-R-N-E. And uh, it's a terrific book. Uh, 
it, it deals with what we've been talking about, plus all these other myths. And he just goes through and debunks all of them. And I have to be careful to emphasize that's not to say there's no legitimate criticism of intelligence research. There's plenty. And when it's, when the criticism comes in the form that can be tested, people test it. Mm-hmm. And they're all empirical questions. Now, philosophically, uh, can animals be as intelligent as people? Is artificial intelligence the same as human intelligence? These are, that's a different level of question. Um, I don't know how to advise people working on general artificial intelligence uh, because I don't know enough about what they do, how they write the algorithms. Uh, I've used CPT chat. I find it like everybody else. It's very intriguing. Doesn't strike me that it's intelligent, though, in the same way, you know, a five-year-old is intelligent. Uh, so these are all questions. As we get more data, more sophisticated data, we get more sophisticated questions. More sophisticated questions lead to more sophisticated technologies to answer those questions. You know, intelligence researcher research is like every other branch of science. It's driven by measurement. And over time, you get better and better measurement. And that really what happened is what's happening in modern intelligence research. Uh, the, so what where we are in 2023 is not where we were in 1973 or 1983 or 1993. Uh, the, the world has moved on. And I'm happy to say intelligence research has moved on. It's very vibrant. The people doing it are extremely smart, well-educated people. They're younger people coming up with training in neuroscience, training in neuroimaging, training in mathematical analysis of these very complex data sets, things that I could only imagine barely when I was in graduate school. So the whole enterprise has changed. The first study that I did that I mentioned in 1988 with neuroimaging had a sample size of eight, not 80, eight. Well, by today's standard, this is absurd. <laughs> now, it turns out what we found with those eight people, this brain efficiency, that's been studied now, you know, uh, for, for 30 years, and there's, there's something interesting there. Um, but, um, uh, the science has evolved dramatically. So I barely can keep up with it. You know, I, I write these books and it, when I just did the second edition of the Neuroscience of Intelligence, I realized I had reached my limit in terms of being able to explain things like polygenic scores and some of these connectivity uh, brain imaging analyses. Papers are very complex and problems are complex. And the history of science is as you get deeper and deeper into problems, they get more complex, not less complex. So I'm, you know, I, I'm delighted to see all this. Yeah. Well, I, I'm really hoping that it doesn't feel like I'm grilling you 
and trying to put you on. Uh, okay, good. There is before we get though, get back to some more of the positive findings. There is one uh, recent thing that I was reading about that I wanted to get your thoughts on. So there are m- major movements to abolish admissions tests for higher education, like the SAT or GRE, and I've always scored well on them, so I, I like them. But I, I wonder if you think that's a mistake and. One argument against these tests that I see all the time is that the richest students are best able to afford preparation and thus inflate their scores. But the main reason I would think that this isn't that pressing of a criticism is that preparation can't improve scores that much and if they're only improved i don't know two three five percentage points people are probably treated very similar by admissions committees that are in that interval well there's a lot there um standardized tests like the sat are effectively intelligence tests Nobody really who does who uh, sells the SAT wants to say that because the SAT test is controversial enough without saying it's also an intelligence test. But one of the reasons criticisms of IQ testing is diminishing is because the critics of standardized testing have essentially won. They've won the argument. Most colleges and universities are eliminating the SAT. It's gone. With no SAT scores, there are no gaps anymore. Problem solved. It's just like the National Rifle Association made sure uh, laws were passed that the Centers for Disease Control couldn't get data on gun violence. No data, no problem. You know, it's exactly the same thing. Um, in In the University of California, interestingly, recently, got rid of the SAT, no more. You can't can't use it. Uh, they they banned it. And this was after a two-year uh, inquiry into the SAT by faculty, a faculty task force with real experts in psychometrics and sociology, real experts in all the disciplines you would need to understand the problem. And the conclusion of the task force was, The SAT is a valuable tool in college admission. We should keep it, especially because it helps identify underprivileged kids who otherwise would fall through the cracks that we can help. Okay, that that was their conclusion. And it went up and the the chancellor of the whole system looked at this and said, "Eh, we're going to ban it anyway. That's the politics of it, I guess. So you are correct when you say, when used with other admission criteria, whether somebody gets uh, you know, a 650 or a 630, might not make much difference. Um, it's a tricky thing, but it, it, personnel selection or student selection is another very sophisticated set of metrics. You know, um, you could let everybody in, but then you're going to have some people who can't do it. 
You can have various cutoffs, but each cutoff will have false positives and false negatives. And every institution kind of has to figure out what they want. So if you're a medical school and uh, you want the, the best students, you have a certain cutoff on the MCATs. Well, you get rid of the MCATs, what do you go by? Uh, you don't have that anymore. Um, and uh, political criteria, uh, there's no evidence that political criteria give you better outcomes in terms of competence than things like the SAT. So the country now is embroiled in this um, uh, contest uh, between uh, you know meritocracy and what generally might be called uh, social justice or diversity, equity, and inclusion. And the pendulum over time swings back and forth. We used to have a uh, not too long ago. It was mostly meritocracy. You could have a certain cutoff on the SATs and have a lottery within the people who met that cutoff, and you would probably do just as well. If you get rid of the SATs and you want to swing back toward having goals of uh, equity, then that's another story. There are pluses and minuses. Somehow a balance has to be found. It's not up to scientists to to figure it out. I mean, when you see the University of California task force making an empirical recommendation or a recommendation based on empirical data and the decision makers decide, well, we have other criteria. This is the world in which we live. Hmm. One dimension of my question that you didn't touch on was the extent to which preparation can impact scores? There have been a lot of studies of that. And um, the studies generally show, well, here's what the complicating factor. The older studies on this issue show that preparation had very little, if any, impact. Okay. The newer studies, however, do find that preparation can improve scores. And this is a result of removing the G-loaded items from the SAT. By, by uh, getting rid of the analogies, you're making it a less you're making it a less G-loaded intelligence test, and therefore, ironically, more amenable to training and practice and coaching. So uh when when my kids were taking it it was still uh, uh difficult to coach i knew it but all the other kids were doing the, the 1500 dollar course we did it too even though i knew it wouldn't change things and in fact it, it barely moved the needle and nowadays i'm not sure that's true nowadays i think you can uh have some benefit more than just a review so the SAT then has diverged pretty significantly from IQ tests. I don't know what pretty significantly means. Well, it's but much it, less G-loaded than it once it, it was. Less, it's less G-loaded. Empirically, how much that is, I, I, I can't say. I don't know. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I mean, so the whole testing enterprise uh, is complicated. 
I mean, the people have different motivations. There's economic motivations in terms of selling the test. There are implications for colleges and universities in terms of selecting students. There's a general feeling that colleges and universities like the SAT have courses and majors now that don't require that, that high level uh, reasoning ability uh, that was that still is required for some uh, 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 majors like physics and chemistry and so on. So uh, you know if if you are the chairman of a physics department, and your undergraduates have an average SAT math score, 650, 700, most of those kids will probably finish the major. If kids have a SAT math score of 500 and they go into physics, the probability is they won't finish. Not that they, not that they necessarily can't, but most of them won't finish. It's a probability issue, hard to tell for individual cases. But if you if you eliminate the SAT math, then the chairman of the physics department really doesn't know what he's dealing with, uh, how to adjust accordingly. So these are all complicated issues. I don't know how to solve any of them. I'm interested in understanding what intelligence is, where it comes from, and how we might be able to improve it. That is a lifetime full of work, and it's a work in, in, in progress. And uh, uh, I think we're making progress in those things. And all these ish, other criticisms, they're really voiced more as statements of fact. Uh, they're really irrelevant to me because they're not empirically correct. Mm-hmm. You, you've mentioned a number of times how predictive IQ tests are, and implicit in this discussion of college admissions is that IQ tests are predictive of competence and su- success in academia. And this leads me to wonder, before we move on from psychometrics, just how much and what sort of research has been done on what sort of tasks someone with a certain IQ can or can't be expected to accomplish or how intelligence, general intelligence correlates with success in various endeavors like business, medicine, or academia. Tremendous research on it. There's a lot of data on it. Uh, You can summarize it uh, fairly easily. Just if you rank jobs by the complexity of the job, then IQ becomes very predictive in complex jobs. So if you, you, a complex job would be the CEO of a major corporation. A chemist is a complex job. A physicist is a complex job. Uh, a, a data manager is a complex job. Um, less complex jobs are food service is not that complicated a job. Uh, janitorial work is not that complicated a job in most cases. Uh, in some cases, it's highly complex. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of study of this. And you can find uh, all kinds of predictions, but they are probabilities. You know, there's also some evidence that 
people with IQs between 85 and 100, if they go to college, actually benefit from college. So um, people want to know, will I gain anything by knowing my IQ score? I get emails all the time from people who say, my, I had my IQ tested, it, it's X. Does that mean I shouldn't apply to graduate school? And the answer is no, that's not what it means. You you try to do whatever you want to do. You may succeed, you may fail. The IQ score may give you a probability, but it's not determinative in, in a literal sense. You know, um, it's all probability. And there are lots of factors to success. I mean, there are there are many people who have very high G. And you wouldn't want to have dinner with them. They're just kind of unpleasant people. You know, I my appointments have been in medical schools. Almost everybody I I know on the faculty, that's very high G. Some of them are dishonest people. <laughs> Some of them are unpleasant people. Some of them are people I would not invite into my home. <laughs> so just having high G isn't necessarily all you want to know about a person. Mm -hmm. Is high G synonymous for high IQ? Uh, it's not synonymous. I mean, th there are th these distinctions, uh, but in the vernacular for everyday conversation, they're used synonymous. Yeah, that, yeah. okay, that's, that's what I meant. Well, I'd like to turn now to some of your work on brain imaging. And I think the natural first question is, what is the parietofrontal integration theory model of intelligence that you developed with, is it Rex Jung? Jung? Okay. So way back um, in uh, 2005, 2006, you know, I, I had a symposium where I brought all the people doing brain imaging studies of intelligence. I invited all of them to a conference. And most of them came. And we're only talking about a handful of people. And um, and Rex Jung was one of them. I didn't know him before that. But in the presentations that everybody made with different imaging parameters and different tests, it became obvious that Rex and I had the same basic view that there were areas distributed around the brain that were important. It wasn't just the frontal lobes, critically important, because there a number of people thought that intelligence was a function of the frontal lobe, period. And the, number, the, the small number of brain imaging studies that had been done seemed to indicate a more distributed set of networks. So Rex and I actually started to review all these other papers. And we found 30, I think 36 or 37 papers uh, of uh, using uh, either fMRI, func uh, structural MRI, or PET to, uh, to look at uh, different tests of intelligence. And so we wrote a review article trying to um, go beyond the difficulties of every study had a different kind of test and a different kind of imaging. And we just looked for areas that were in common among the various studies, 
the areas that they showed were related to whatever test of intelligence or reasoning they had. And it turned out, just kind of counting areas, that most of the areas were in the parietal lobe and the frontal lobe. Most studies found parietal and frontal areas were related to their tests of intelligence or reasoning. And there were some other areas as well. So we kind of mapped this out and published the review article and labeled this finding as a parietal frontal integration theory, that it was how the parietal lobe talked to the frontal lobe and a few other areas that were responsible for individual differences in intelligence. And the efficiency of the connections we hypothesized based on my 1988 efficiency study, uh, we hypothesized that the efficiency of the integration among this small set of brain areas would be would be could could be the underlying neurobiological basis of, of intelligence in terms of brain networking, and uh, it was the first uh, uh, theoretical uh, model, if you will, or framework uh, for brain imaging studies of intelligence. It was published in two thousand and seven a very long time ago. And since then, on a large number of brain imaging studies, over 100 easily, uh, have tested the hypotheses that we proposed in the parietal frontal integration theory, the PFIT model. And there is um, uh, quite a bit of, uh, of data now that support the idea that the parietal and frontal lobes are really key and that the connectivity, both structural connectivity and functional connectivity among those areas are pretty important. Now this, you know, these are all hints about what the underlying neurobiology is. So, you know, what are what is the neurocircuitry in those areas? What are the neurotransmitters that are prominent? Uh, integrating information flow among these areas. Um, you know, uh, so it, it's been a, a framework that has helped test hypotheses of neuroimaging. And it's gotten, you know, the studies, you know, I've, I've been retired for some time. I haven't done a new study in a long time. But uh, I am keeping up with new studies, and they are. Uh, a very uh, more detailed in terms of explicating the neurocircuitry and the PFIT model and adding to the PFIT model, I should add, as you would expect over time. Um, I uh, attended a meeting uh, at uh, Edinburgh University where uh, somebody was presenting um, brain imaging data, uh, a woman who's uh, uh, extremely good at, at brain imaging data, Eureka Baston, and she presented data showing uh, that that did not support brain efficiency. And I was sitting there in the frontal row, and you know, during the question period, I raised my hand. I said, "You probably would like to know what I'm thinking about your data that doesn't support my hypothesis." And I, I said, "I think it's terrific because it's just a hypothesis. The whole idea is." You got to test it. it. The data don't support it, and move on. And we develop, you know, the hypothesis further. 
Uh, so she has data that didn't support it. Other people had data that did support it. This is the way science goes. And over time, you establish a weight of evidence. No one study is going to tell the story. Brain is complicated. You have to spend time sorting through what apparently conflicting uh, or inconsistent results from different studies, and you develop a weight of evidence. And pretty much uh, that's where we are on intelligence research now. Um, it's going along pretty well. And it's very exciting, too. I mean, the idea of being able to understand uh, reasoning ability and individual differences in reasoning ability on a neurobiological level, synaptic level, perhaps, this is uh, way beyond what someone like a Spearman uh, could imagine. I mean, he would be delighted if he were here today. Mm -hmm. I mentioned that I that I spoke with Robert Plowman about behavioral genetics, and we discussed the heredity of intelligence, which, as you already said, is I mean, some studies suggest it's above 0.5. And we didn't discuss, though, just what the genes one inherits that result in an intelligent person code for. And essentially, do they correspond to the sorts of structures and connectivity, the neurocircuitry that's pointed to in the PFIT model, if that's the right model? Some people have have discussed some gene expression with respect to the parietal lobe, the frontal lobe. This is an evolving, this is a very nascent field. And so if there are a thousand genes, each with a tiny influence, on intelligence or individual differences or the variance of intelligence, you, then you, you you can make a list of these genes and then you can go to the data banks where other people have studied these genes and have some idea of what they do. And you try to make a list of what the gene expressions are. Um, I've read some of these things. They're very complicated and really beyond my ability to understand a lot of it. Um, uh, I've never really been trained in, in, in these fields, uh, and they're much different now than they were when I was, in, you know, a student. Um, but you can look for final common pathways. You can look. Maybe you got fifty genes that are all uh, involved in uh, the genetic uh, e expression of uh, uh, postsynaptic terminals of dopamine receptors or something. So you should be able at some point to infer some hypotheses about the biologically causal, you know, not, not, not just the influence, but, but causal relationships. I, we're not there yet. Some people think it can't be done with polygenic scores. Um, this is a debate. Um, I think Robert Pullman would be of the opinion that even if polygenic scores don't give insights into biological causation, they're still useful in terms of quantifying a genetic load of something like intelligence. And it's a variable that you can use in other studies as a covariant to control for genetics. So this is uh, relatively new. 
and um, people are working it out. Mm-hmm. And again, I totally understanding that this is uh, a nascent area of research, but at this point, I, I I understand that it might be possible in the future. But at this point, can brain imaging be used to predict aptitudes or various dimensions of intelligence? Uh, the short answer is yes. The long answer is yes, but not very well. Okay. My guess, one thing that, I mean, you've talked about this efficiency hypothesis is that you can detect using brain imaging how efficient somebody's brain is. And this will, in general, correlate to general intelligence, if the hypothesis is correct. At some point, you might be able to define intelligence not by psychometric test score, but by quantifiable parameters of information flow around the brain while people solve a standard set of problems. That would be really cool. Yeah, it would. (laughs) No, we're not there yet. Hmm. And I guess this might complicate matters, but do different brains solve the same problems the same way or differently? Is this something that you're able to tell with brain imaging? This is something I've been wanting to understand since our first brain imaging study in 1988. So if you have problems that can be solved by different strategies, then you see the different strategies being used by looking at brain imaging. The answer to this generally is yes, but still nascent. So you can... um, uh, Well, you know that the matrix reasoning problems can be solved verbally or visual-spatially. And some people do it one way, some people do it the other way. Uh, This confounds trying to find what brain areas are involved in, in this test. You have to control for strategies, and there are different ways that can be done. Um, so uh, these are all good questions, and um, uh, all good questions, and it really now depends on the focus of the investigators who have all these big data sets. And the postdocs and graduate students, they have to assign to go analyze data that would answer that question. You know, and can you sort out uh, strategies from other data? Uh, take a look at that. Yeah, so there are a lot of in- a lot of interesting questions that can uh, that still need to be addressed. Well, I'd I'd like to go back to Arthur Jensen, and I alluded to this question of plasticity earlier, and it's come up as we talked about early childhood education, but tying it back to the PFIT model is one of the reasons we might success, we might expect intelligence not to be highly plastic is that it is it corresponds to structural features of the brain and it's just not that easy to change the structures of the brain. I think that's correct. I, it's not that easy to change uh, brain structure or brain function in in uh, in big ways. The brain is plastic. We know you can make some changes, 
<clears throat> but whether or not you can, uh, whether or not the plasticity extends to something as fundamental as indulgence is not so clear. Right. I mean, you could, if you're learning how to play the drums or something, you let's say you're you're le- learning a, a new tune. The brain is sufficiently plastic that you can learn a new tune, but it's almost meta plasticity to be able to. Because to increase your intelligence, one thing that might happen is you'd have to be able to learn just in general faster. And that that's why I use the word meta. It's like a second degree of plasticity. And that's something that might really require serious structural change. Yes, right. I mean, we don't really know, you know, how uh, this all works, really. <laughs> but step by step, we can start to figure it out. Uh, but uh, I think it will be possible. Uh, now, you know, would you ever want to, or if would you ever want to channel students into different ways of learning? For example, using something like polygenic scores or brain imaging. Uh, these are interesting philosophical questions. There's no practical way to do this now. Uh, uh, I talked about the metaphorical concept of the IQ pill. Someday it may be possible to intervene in a way that will increase intelligence. Let's say it's a pill. Unlikely it's a literal pill, but metaphorically, there's some way available. And uh, would you take it? And, uh, you know, would you pay for it? Would you object if it went into the water supply? Would you give it to your kids? Especially if all the other children's parents were giving it to their kids. I mean, there are a lot of questions here. Um, You know, it's like doping in sports and banned. So... uh, could you really enforce this in, in in high school? Kids now take drugs because they think it improves their test performance and their IQ. I'm not sure I've seen any studies that validate that, but it's widely believed and lots of kids have prescriptions. And they, they pop pills before the SAT. Now they don't have to do that anymore if the SAT is not used. There are a lot of issues here, and uh, you know, I think about them. I don't know what the answers are, but I do know that public discussion is important about the actual data, not ideas that people have that really not empirically validated. You know, maybe surprisingly, we haven't really talked much about what has actually been learned about human intelligence from the psychometric data that's accumulated over the past hundred years. And one of the things that you said that I hadn't expected, but that surprised me in the course of the conversation was that the ability to pay attention is a big part of intelligence. I mean, it makes sense. I'd never, it had never occurred to me before, but what have been some of the other maybe big surprises? I imagine, I mean, it's a surprising finding that intelligence falls on, human intelligence falls on the on a, it's normally distributed. That's very surprising in itself. Uh, are there, or it looks like you have something to say to that? Maybe. You... 
Well, I mean, it's kind of a hard question for me to answer because I, uh, I've been living with this stuff for 40, 50 years, you know. Uh, so what's surprising? Uh, intelligence test scores are stable over long periods of time. Between people, like one person who... One person, yeah, longitudinal studies. So uh, I like to talk about a study that was done in Scotland in the 1930s where the government decided... Uh, they wanted to give an intelligence test to every single kid who was 11 years old in the whole country. And they did. Like, I think it was like a week's period of time. And they got uh, all this IQ data. It wasn't a sample. It was the population, literally. And they did some things with this, but all the data were put locked away in a storeroom in Edinburgh University discovered decades later by a, fr a friend of mine, uh, Ian Deary, who's a professor there. And he got all these old handwritten records, all the names of everybody, all their, their scores. And, uh, basically, he digitized everything. And he found a bunch of those individuals were still alive in their 70s. He brought them in for DNA and intelligence testing and neuroimaging and published a whole bunch of studies on this this group. But one of the findings was the high correlation between their IQ score at age 11 and their subsequent retest at age 70, you know, showing stability of the IQ score. But the really uh, surprising finding from that study was, uh, I mentioned that some of the people were still alive. You could, he went back and looked at death records for the whole sample. Every, I mean, they have all this stuff for the whole country. And uh, he divided uh, all these 11-year-olds into quartiles based on their 11-year-old IQ score. And then he looked to see, he looked at the death records. And it turns out if you were in the highest quartile of IQ at age 11, twice as many people in that group were alive at age 75 than the lower quartile. This is in a country with socialized medicine and universal health care. So, you know, what's this about? Uh, there's, there's been some research, quite a bit of research, trying to understand why this is the case. That was a surprising finding. A similar longitudinal study started at Johns Hopkins in 1971 when I started graduate school. I worked on that study a little bit looking for scientifically and mathematically precocious kids. They gave the SAT math score to 11, 12, and 13-year-olds, and they found kids who were scoring as high on SAT math as incoming Hopkins freshmen. And those kids have now been studied literally for 50 years, and it turns out that single test score at age 11 predicts enormous levels of achievement you know, through their careers. Some of them went on to college early, and some of them have gone on to a very illustrious academic and, and, and uh, non-academic careers. Uh, so one test score, age 11, addictive. So, um, yeah, there, there's a lot of interesting things about uh, intelligence. It's obviously important. Um, when you talk about the normal distribution, here's something I worry about. You talk about the normal distribution. 
And you don't even have to adjust for group differences. In the normal distribution in the United States, the top you know, 1% in the IQ distribution is about 3 million people. The top 1% in China is 1.3 or 4 billion, I'm sorry, is 13 or 14 million people. So you have many more people operating at a high end just, just by virtue of the population numbers. And, you know, you, people have made the argument that economies of countries uh, are driven by the top one or two percent of the population for innovation and management and all the things that make, make, make uh, countries uh, successful. You know, they got 14 million, we got 3 million. You know, it's there has to be an impact of that. And especially if uh, somebody finds a way to increase intelligence, that could have all kinds of implications on national com competition level, as opposed to individual within a country going to school. So there, there's a lot here. And I, sometimes I wonder what, what we're going to know 100 years from now. I mean, 100 years ago, we were getting a positive manifold, simple correlations. Not right now, we're getting polygenic scores, neuroimaging, cognitive testing, psychometrics. What are we going to know 100 years from now? I hope a lot. What are you referring to when you say that we, we don't need to adjust for group differences when we're comparing? China and the United States? Uh, East Asians have a mean IQ that's a little higher than European American IQ. And other ethnic groups have a lower uh, average. And these are, these are the most controversial aspects of intelligence research. These group differences are a very, very minor proportion of modern IQ or intelligence research. They're not that interesting anymore. Uh, they used to be interesting because people wanted to try to identify cultural or social variables that were responsible for these differences with the idea that maybe you could uh, impact culture and sociological variables and uh, minimize these differences. But over time, that's that hasn't gone anywhere. The differences are pretty stable. Uh, and um, whether genes have anything to do with it is very controversial. Now, another area where, where people say it's just so complicated, we can never really say that that would be true. And even if it is true, we don't know what's going on and it interacts with environment and it's just complicated. So it's an area that um, I don't know what, what the future of that area is, but even leaving those mean differences aside and not adjusting, countries like India and China have an enormous number of people working at a, at a higher level 
in smaller countries. Now, you know, you can compensate this for this. You can say, well, this country has a small number of people, but they have better education. Or they somehow culturally, they, uh, they uh, induce more creativity, which is important. So again, a lot of factors involved here. But uh, certainly intelligence is one important factor. Hmm. And is the research on these group differences then not, not a big proportion of research today because one, the data is settled, but then two, explaining the etiology of the data is too complex that it's just not dealt with? Well, the psychometricians who used to be interested by and large are no longer interested because the the differences are stable. They're there. Nobody really uh, 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 denies that the differences exist. And as to what causes the difference, um, there have been attempts to find sociological variables or environmental variables. So, you know, something like lead is certainly an important variable in poor neighborhoods. Like lead in drinking water? Well, lead in, uh, in Flint, Michigan. Yes, these are all important things. But the research that's moving on is asking questions more like whatever genes are involved in any population, any discrete population that might influence intelligence, are they the same genes that are involved in a different population? So polygenic scores might equally predict in two populations, but they might weight or have different SNPs as part of the score. So there's a, there's a lot still to learn here. Um, and, uh, you know, for a long time, there was some reluctance to even collect data on some populations. Uh, people were worried about that. Now there's a big drive to get as much DNA data as possible to answer questions like that. So we have a lot of exciting things and, um, you know, a lot, a lot for public discussion. Mm-hmm. What do you think, I mean, as, as we near ending uh, or the end of our conversation, what are the developments over the next five to 10 years that you're expecting or research areas that you're most interested in following? The neuroimaging is getting interesting and the polygenic scores uh, are getting interesting. Uh, there are controversies about, about using polygenic scores that are being worked out uh, mostly amicably among people who are knowledgeable about this. On the periphery, there are some of these self-righteous people who have ideas that are not amenable to respectful discussion, but I don't worry about that. Um, so I think the genetics, the molecular genetics, uh, and the, the neuroimaging, I think, in terms of predicting uh, uh the psychometric variables getting very interesting. And okay, everybody wants to be smarter. I mean, you talked about the smart pill. I I think I would take a smart pill if I could, but because these smart pills 
aren't around and we can't do gene gene therapy to make ourselves smarter. I think it would be nice to end our conversation with some sort of uh, prescription or ideas for how people could become smarter, but it doesn't seem like there really are any. I mean, there are these brain teaser apps, these sorts of things. Do any of those hold water or are there any suggestions that you do have? I mean, reading makes you more knowledgeable. I don't know if it makes you smarter, but what what are your thoughts on, on this constellation of, of questions here? Uh, well, the short answer is no, none of them work to raise IQ, let alone the G factor. The real test is whether or not the latent G variable will increase, not whether the test score increases. You know, if you take if you take an IQ test when you have the flu and a hundred and two temperature, you're going to get a score. A month later, when you're better, you take an IQ test again, you're going to get another score. Obviously, one is going to be a better estimate of your ability than the other. Okay, so raising scores is not really the issue, but a latent G change is really the criterion, and I don't know of anything that does that. You know, education maybe adds a little bit, but it's not so clear how much and how much education. Um, so the answer is no. Uh, parents will try anything, even in parents who deny IQ is important, will try anything to get, you know, any educational toy that might increase uh, child's intelligence. Um, but the short answer is no. The long answer is no, nothing works so far. But I would be one of the first to do it if it existed. I'd like to take an IQ pill, sure. I mean, what's the downside? Yeah, well, I guess my question raised another question for me, something that we, we didn't discuss, is what the relationship is between knowledge and intelligence. Because we we sometimes conflate the two in the vernacular. I mean, if somebody has read a lot of books and knows a lot of facts, we just say that they're intelligent. But the same person can have not read those books and have the same amount of intelligence, even if they don't possess those facts. Well, it's a little bit, it's a little bit like knowing that vocabulary tests are high on G and you say, I am going to learn better vocabulary. Uh -huh. So you, you have the reader's digest list of words or, you know, and, and then you try to use those words in the sentence and it doesn't really go so well for many people. Okay. <laughs> because it's not, the fact that you have the vocabulary is just an index that you can learn that you you've you've learned vocabulary in your reading in your experience in life and you you know what those words mean and you can use them appropriately there's nothing funnier than someone trying to appear intelligent by using words that they clearly don't know the con the right context you know overly sophisticated words. So um, I just, there's just nothing. <laughs> there's just, just nothing is going to raise that G factor yet. That's why I think the, uh, it's going to be a neurobiological, uh, it's a neurobiological problem, I think. And it may not be solvable. I mean, it may not be possible. Well, if it is that raises a, a hundred other questions, huge social implications, but I think we've done 
as much as we can today. So thank you so much for talking with me. This was so great. Well, I'm happy to do it. I'm always happy to talk about it. And uh, if people want to uh, know more, I got a couple of books. You see, find them on Amazon. And um, if you really want to get into it, those books have plenty of scientific references. So everything I'm talking about is really supported by a weight of scientific evidence. And that's a thought I'd like to leave everyone with. Okay, great. And I will be, of course, pointing our listeners to that in the the description and the introduction. So I can say right now, you can check the description for those links. But again, thank you so much. Hold on. If you haven't subscribed, liked, commented, or reviewed, that would be so helpful. And if you haven't yet, you could also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Robinson Earhart.